Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. We're in week four of a five-week series called The Five Solas. The word solas, it means only or alone. So if you haven't been with us, let me catch you up real quick. Five solas. These are five non-negotiable truths for the Christian faith that come straight from the Gospels that were actually reclaimed in the 16th century in what we call as the, the Reformation. So with these truths, today we're talking about this, solus Christus, Latin, for Christ alone. Because we are saved in Christ alone. Let me start with this by asking you a question. Have you ever heard of faith deconstruction? Faith deconstruction. It's a very trendy thing that is happening in our world right now. Uh, It it is this, and I'll just take this from Wikipedia. Check this out. It says this, definition of faith deconstruction. It's a phenomenon within American evangelicalism in which Christians rethink their faith and jettison Previously held beliefs, sometimes to the point of no longer identifying as Christians. I'll say this, faith deconstruction, you have something, this Christian faith. You take it apart, and then you start putting it back together. And can I say this? Sometimes that can be good. Because there might be parts of your Christian faith that aren't actually from the Bible. It it actually was never a part of the gospel stories. Jesus never actually taught that. But let me give you three different results of faith deconstruction. Here's the first one. They're right in your notes there, is you could develop a mature faith that sets aside needless religious baggage. Now think about this for a minute. If you know the the scriptures, you know the apostle Paul, he used to be called Saul. This is what he went through. He was like one of the most righteous Jews out there, a a rule follower. We'll get to his story in just a minute. But he was a, a Jewish person who believed in the Old Testament scriptures, followed them to a T. But it was interesting, when he met Jesus He had to deconstruct what he believed about God and then put it back together on the basis of Jesus. And that was really, really helpful for him. He became this follower of Christ, God worshiper. This is what happened to the reformers in the 16th century. They looked at the faith that was handed to them from the Catholic church and they said, you know what, there's stuff in here that is actually not in the Bible. I mean, things like we talked about this on week one. Do you remember this? Uh, it, it was the concept that of how do, you, uh, how do you purchase indulgences so that you or family members can get out of purgatory early where it's kind of burning the sin off you before you go to heaven? And they asked the question, well, what does the Bible say about that? And the answer was nothing. So how can that be a core tenet of your faith if the Bible doesn't speak to that? And so they, they protested against that and they broke away from the Catholic Church and that's why they're known as Protestants, Right? So this is such a great question that we talked about on week one. What does the Bible say about that? Now, if you're going to deconstruct your faith, like you were handed your faith from your parents, maybe. I mean, they they taught you something. It could have been being an agnostic or even an atheist. And you received that. And now you're hearing these truths about Jesus. I mean, you're here for a reason, right? And you're you're hearing these these five non-negotiable truths. And you have to actually not just add them to your life, but you have to like deconstruct what you've been taught and then put it back together by asking this question. What does the Bible say about that? Here's a second result in a faith deconstruction. You can actually create an immature faith that is less offensive to culture. 
much of deconstruction, the deconstruction movement is actually this. Because there's things in the Bible that are offensive to our culture. And they go, well, surely God wouldn't want to offend our culture. And so they start setting aside things from the Bible that the Bible speaks to and saying, well, maybe that's not actually true. This kind of faith actually takes out things that have to do with a lot with like holy living. Like when God adopts you into his family, you represent him then. You're his ambassador. And so he wants you to carry his family values. And so what they often do is they'll set aside kind of the things that look like a holy life. God's expectation, like I want the whole heaven thing. I just don't want the whole live like Jesus kind of thing. And so they have what's called an immature faith. Here's the third possibility here. The third result is that you give up on your Christian faith altogether. altogether. And what you're really saying is this. I do not believe that the scriptures hold any kind of authority in my life. So who holds the authority in your life? Well, you do. You then become the center of your world. This kind of deconstruction is actually what is happening most of the time in culture today when they use the term faith deconstruction. They're not reconstructing it based off of the gospels and what's in the scriptures. They're actually just dismantling the Christian faith for themselves. Trust me, it doesn't dismantle any of the historical evidence or any of the Christian faith at all. They just decide not to follow it and live by it. So faith deconstruction. It's one of the reasons why we're doing this five soulless series. We're talking about these five non-negotiable truths that were given to us in the 16th century. Now, just so we're aware of this, these truths were not created in the 16th century. They were actually reclaimed from what Jesus taught and reclaimed from the first century church. So let's go through these real quick. Ready? Five solas. They're in your notes right there. We are made right with God. We're forgiven. We're given this relationship with God by these things right here. By grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. That's what we're going to talk about today. As revealed in scripture alone. All for the glory of God alone. That's next week. But you're not going to see it on the screen here, but in your notes, there's just a real simple diagram where at the center of all four of those alones or onlys is Christ alone. Because God's grace was shown when Jesus stepped into our world. Our faith is not a faith in a belief system. Our faith is actually in a person. It's in the person of Jesus. Christ is revealed by scripture alone. Christ is at the center of how we give glory to God. So here it is. In Christ is actually the center of all of these. It's the most important. Now that's kind of weird to say this because I just told you this. Um, They're all five. These are non-negotiables. You step outside these, you've actually stepped outside the Christian faith. So it's weird to say they're all essential, but this is the most important in Christ alone. But I'm going to say it that way. So today might actually be the most important thing in this whole soulless series, because anybody who wants to deconstruct these five things will have to wrestle with scriptures like this. We read this earlier. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and mankind. Watch me. There's God and there's humanity. There's only one God. There's not multiple gods. There's not multiple versions of him. Not all religions lead to God. There's one true God and then there's humanity. And there's one mediator that stands between God and humanity. And here it is. The man, Christ Jesus. And then it describes him. Who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This is what we stand on. In Christ alone, we're saved. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Here's another one. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Christ didn't exist when he, when he was born here to earth. He existed before that. It was through Christ that the world was made. And then it says this. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and this blows me away, the exact representation of God's being. Want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Read the stories that were written about him. Read his teachings. Read what it is that he did by the people who walked with him and talked with him. You want to know who God is? It's only found in Jesus. You want to try and deconstruct the Christian faith? You have to wrestle with that. You actually, if you're going to deconstruct the Christian faith, you have to set aside all of this. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to believe out of here. It's the word of God in the New Testament there that we say that is the covenant, the testament under which we live. So Jesus, center of our faith. It's one of the reasons why in this last year, as a staff, we've been asking this question. Yes, our our mission of our church has always been making disciples, but I think we need to say it in a new way. And we've been landing on this, this concept. The mission of our church is this. It's displaying the irresistibility of Jesus displaying by our words, by our actions, by our lives, displaying the irresistibility of Jesus so that people's lives are transformed. That's what we want to be about. I would get out of bed and go to work for that. I'd commit the rest of my life if I could see that in droves in this church. In the first century, though, there's a group of people in a church where some people moved into a church and they tried to deconstruct the faith. Can I show you their story? Open up to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul is writing to this church, and they're under the threat of faith deconstruction. Not by people outside the church. It's actually by people inside the church. So here's his warning. He says this, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. I think this is interesting. He's saying, listen, joy is a part of this story, but I'm writing something to you that you already know. Here's why. The thing that threatens us sometimes is because we already know something, but we didn't hold it as essential, as a core, as a core belief and a tenet to go, listen, that's a non-negotiable. And all of a sudden there's these things in this world that are like, well, maybe that's not actually true. And they're threatening what it is that we say we believe. This is going on in the Silicon Valley. It's going on all across the United States. It's going on all over the world today. People questioning what has been known to be truth for thousands of years. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And then he warns them about these false beliefs. Here's the first one. Number one, it's Jesus plus my old ways can equal salvation. Verse two, let me explain this to you. He says, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. (laughs) For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's warning about a group of people. Who are they? I'm going to give them a title that he doesn't use. They were known as Judaizers. These are people who were claiming to be Christians, claiming to be a part of the church, but they had grown up in the heritage of being Jewish. And really what they were saying is this, Jesus is awesome, we're a follower of Jesus too, but in order to be saved, you not only have to believe in Jesus and in Christ alone are you saved, but you actually have to become Jewish too. 
So let me tell you the three insults that he gives them. And I will say this, he was insulting them. Um, this, his words are spicy, all right? And this, his words, his comments, it would never pass HR. I'm just saying. He says this, beware of those dogs. And this is irony because Jewish people back in the day would refer to Gentiles as dogs. How many of you have a dog? This is a total different dog, okay? See, in the first century, you would never have a pet in your house that like didn't do some work for you because all he would do is eat your food, poop in your house, right? And they would take food off your table. I mean, who would want that? A dog was a scavenger, a dirty scavenger, the equivalent today of what I would say, it's a rat. It's just a big rat. And so when he says a dog, he's like, you are a worthless, dirty, consuming vermin. That's how the Jews used to call the Gentiles. But Paul, being a Christian, is turning around and saying, no, no, we're not actually the dogs. The dogs are these people who are trying to pollute the gospel. And then he calls them evildoers. And this man, this must have really bothered them because of this. They always saw themselves as super righteous. They were the people that would look at the Old Testament covenant, which we no longer live under the Old Testament covenant. And they would say, we follow all these rules. And they were trying to get the people to follow all the rules of the Old Testament. And he's like, oh, you think you're do-gooders, but you're not. You're actually evil doers. And there's a, um, a third insult in here that probably needs to be explained. He says, they're actually mutilators of the flesh. This, one of the signs of being God's people in the Old Testament was circumcision, all right? So in the midst of that, he's like, that whole sign that you had, you're just mutilators of the flesh. Remember, this is not HR approved. Paul is like getting after it with them. What Paul's communicating is that these Jews grew up believing something. Believing that the Old Testament laws were the ways to honor God, know God, follow God. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And these Judaizers are trying to say, listen, we follow Jesus, but all those Old Testament laws, rules, the ways of living, you need to follow those. They will make God happy. And Paul's just saying, listen, you cannot add Jesus to all of your old ways. That is not the way of salvation. He gives them a second warning. Here it is, number two. A false teaching is that Jesus plus my achievements equals salvation. Now, here's my guess. None of y'all showed up today and were like, oh my goodness, I'm a, I'm a Jewish follower of all the Old Testament laws. My guess is there's probably not a lot of you in the room. So that's not your threat. But Jesus plus my achievements? Man, we live in an achievement-based society. Look at verse 4. Paul says, though I myself, I, I have reason for such confidence. He's talking about his achievements. If someone else thinks that they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's literally saying, if you think you're good before God, I'm better than all you. Sounds a little arrogant. He goes through his list though. He goes, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is his resume. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. What does that mean? Well, let me break this down for you. I actually put it in your notes. You'll see it on the screen. He says, I'm circumcised on the, third, on the eighth day. Well, what that means is he was talking about his religious privilege. I grew up in the right family. 
I did it right from the moment of birth. That was what was commanded on the eighth day. A boy should be, a Jewish boy should be circumcised of the people of Israel. That's his ethnic privilege. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that's his family privilege. That was the right tribe to belong to. A Hebrew of Hebrews, that's his cultural privilege. I grew up in the, the, the most stout, the most devout Hebrew culture. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. That was his educational achievement. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I just call this the hustle award. No one worked harder than Paul did. Under the law, he says, I was blameless. That's his moral achievement. Now, he never called himself perfect. He just said, because of all these laws, if you ever broke one, there were ways to make up for that in the Old Testament. And he's like, I I live my life blameless. There wasn't anybody who worked harder. And so you get to that. And so let me just ask this. What achievements do you think make God love you more? Your education? Your family background? Maybe you grew up with very little and you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and you made it happen and you were successful. You're super proud of that. Why wouldn't God love me? Paul takes all the good things that he's ever done and all his privilege and he turns them around. Look at point number three. Jesus plus something, whatever you want to add to your faith in Christ, it actually ends up equaling nothing. You will find yourself bankrupt. But Jesus plus nothing that you add to it actually equals salvation. Here's where he turns this all around. Verse 7. But whatever were gains to me, all my privilege and all of my achievements, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. In the Greek language, garbage is a very soft form of saying this. Once again, Paul is getting spicy. He's saying, everything that I've achieved is nothing but crap. That's what it says in the Greek. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness, the right standing with God that comes from God on the basis of faith. He writes this, verse 10. I want to know Christ. This is a man who's been following Jesus for years. And he just keeps saying, I just want to know Christ. To know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death, meaning I don't own my own life, whatever he wants to do with me. He can pour me out however he wants. He can spend my life however he wants. I follow him. He's not just the one who saved me. He's my Lord. He's my boss. He's my guide. He's my master. I follow him. I want to become like him in his death. And so somehow, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He's saying Jesus plus something equals nothing. It's garbage. It's trash. Now, we would probably never use this term like, yes, I just want to add things to Jesus so that my salvation has, you know, merit. But you know what we say? We say things like this. How could that person be a Christian? And, and how do you finish that sentence? How could that person be a Christian and vote that way? 
Oh, oh. How can a person be a Christian and have those political beliefs? So people start adding to their faith. Like, how could they go to that kind of a church? How can they not show up to church enough and call themselves a Christian? How can they not follow all the rules and it's legalism? And we add to our faith purity. We add to our faith baptism. We add to our faith denominationalism. Oh, you got to go to the right kind of church. See, people start making non-essential theology essential. I'm going to read to you something um, by a theologian by the name of D.A. Carson. And uh, he says it this way. Most who read these pages, he's talking about Philippians 3, I suspect will not be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and ancient rites of race and religious heritage. But we may be tempted to brag about still less important things. Our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our families, our political or business successes, our denominational alignments, or even about which version of the Bible that we should all be reading. Be careful of people like that. They tend to regard everyone who is outside their little group as somehow inferior. Somewhere along the way, they inadvertently or even intentionally and maliciously imagine that faith in Christ Jesus and they delight in him as in him is a little less important. Their delight in him is a little less important than their personal accomplishments. They value Christ less and they value who they are and their achievements more. He goes on to finish with this. Instead, look around for those whose constant confidence is Jesus Christ, whose constant boast is Christ Jesus, whose constant delight is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center of their worship, the center of their gratitude, the center of their love, the center of their hope. Emulate those whose constant confidence and boast is in Christ Jesus and nothing else. Our salvation Our standing before God, your standing before God, your innocence, your acceptance is dependent on one thing and one thing alone, and it's Christ alone. You add to it, and you're defiling it. His death on the cross for our sins, His invitation to join him in a relationship where he's not just our savior, the one who saves us, but he's our Lord, the one whom we follow. That's what Christ alone means. Now, each week I've tried to land on just a few implications of this. Let me give you just a couple. Solus Christus, Christ alone. It means we actually must be really clear about salvation. Um, I, years ago, got connected with an organization called Young Life. Love it. They, they would, instead of waiting for high school kids to come to the church, they would actually go to the high school, be coaches, and, and uh, volunteer on campus to build relationships. And they would always say this, we want to go into their world and earn the right to be heard. We want to earn the right to share the gospel. And I fully believe in that. However, our times have changed. They've changed a lot. If I wanted to go onto a high school campus today, I couldn't even get on there, right? They'd be like, who's that old guy getting on the school campus? Lock him out. Turn on a siren. But something else has changed. People on social media, 
people in interactions, they've actually become really blatant and bold about proclaiming things that they believe. They're not shy about it. But somehow, we're stuck in a place doing what's called relational evangelism, building relationships, earning trust with people so that when we talk about Jesus, they'll believe us. Nothing wrong with that. Unless we're confusing building trust with wanting to be accepted and liked. I think it's actually more important right now in the history of our world that we are very, very clear, not obnoxious, but very, very clear about what salvation is. That's why we're trying to teach these five pillars, these five solas, these five things that we're going to stand alone on. We will die on these things. We will not let these go. These are non-negotiable. But I think we have to be clear about it. Number two, solus Christus means we must recognize false gospels. Let me be clear about this. (laughs) There's churches who will not agree with us about certain theological beliefs. You show up to their church, it's just different. They have a different culture. They might sing different songs. They might preach differently. We don't just have five non-negotiables in our church. If you go on our website, you'll see there's 14 core theological beliefs. They're on there. You can read them. You can check them out. But under our core beliefs, we also state this. Let me just quote to you this. In essential beliefs, we have unity. Man, you want to roll with us? Man, you want to belong to this family? Here it is. Like, we're all in it. We have unity in these beliefs. We we believe these things. It's not like, you know what? Those five things, I'm in on four of them. Like, one of them, eh, I'm not really down with that. Then you're, you're you're not with us. We ain't family. We can't be because it distorts, it contaminates, it defiles the Christian faith that Jesus gave his life for. In essentials, we have unity. But in non-essential beliefs, we have diversity. There's some things in the scriptures that aren't as clear as I would like them to be. (laughs) And in the midst of that, if they're not core to salvation and the Christian functioning of the church, you know what? We're going to have grace. We're going to have diversity. There's a lot of churches that don't look like us, talk like us, act like us. And yet they're still a part of the family of God. That's great. And then finally this, in in essential beliefs we have unity, in non-essential beliefs we have diversity. In all our beliefs, here it is, we show love. We're not obnoxious and disrespectful. Third thing, solus Christus is offensive to the world. I just want you to realize that. It's offensive, so don't wait for their respect. The Christian faith is open to everyone. But it is exclusive because anyone who denies that salvation is through Christ alone, they actually stand outside of God's family. Anyone who tries to add something to it, you know what it is? It's it's faith in Christ alone. Plus, no, 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 that that person's outside God's family. See, the gospel, the, the word literally means good news. And the fact that there's some good news, there's some bad news. And I'm just going to tell you this. The bad news is offensive to the world. Try it sometime. To someone who's not a follower of Christ, be careful. Maybe this is a rhetorical question. Please don't go try this. I just want you to know that your life is hellbound. That's where your eternity is going to be. That's part of the, the good news that Jesus interrupted that. The good news means that there's bad news, and the bad news is, and it's still offensive when you say, listen, we're all hellbound. 
God's not going to take us based on our merit and our accomplishments. We're all hellbound, deserving death and separation from God forever. That's offensive to people, right? But that sets you up to this, though, that God loves you. And he loved you so much that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you on that cross, waiting to give you this gift of forgiveness and relationship with God. But please don't wait for the world to respect your beliefs before you share them or respect you as a person. Let's proclaim these things that we believe and let, let God sort those through. Your, your role is not to convert people. Your role is to tell people the truth and to love them. Fourth thing, final thing. Solus Christus requires us to examine our own resistance to Jesus alone. Let me explain what I mean. And out of the four things, man, this is one that I, I'm sitting on right now because I think this probably threatens you in the room more than anything. I think there's a genuine struggle for people to look back over their lives and see how they've added anything to their faith in Jesus. And this is what I mean. Um, Maybe you grew up Hindu. Maybe you grew up Buddhist. Maybe you grew up in the Mormon church. Maybe you grew up agnostic, atheist, or even in the Catholic church. I do believe that there are some Catholic people who are saved because they believe in Christ alone. But we covered this in week one when we talked about the Catholic Church and the Reformation. There are things that they distort out of the Word of God. Here's what's really hard. When you look back over how you were raised by your parents, if you converted to the Christian faith, you actually have to say, what I believed before, it was actually wrong. Because you can't take how you were raised before and and be like, I'm just going to follow Jesus now, like you're adding it. It's a conversion. Conversion means you're leaving something behind and you're embracing something new and different. But how hard is it to look back and go, I was wrong. And for some of you, that means you're looking back and it feels disrespectful to your parents to go, and they were wrong and they might still be wrong. God help them because their lives are hellbound. It's super hard to do. Some of y'all grew up in church, tight, legalistic. You don't play cards. Those are of the devil. Come on. I'm going to try not to look at some people who grew up in the South, sitting over in this area. Went to those legalistic churches. How do you look at how you were raised and go, what does the Bible have to say about that? You're like, well, nothing. And to go, you know what? I'm going to actually leave that behind. I'm saved by Christ alone. Can I just say this? Some of y'all carry some baggage. Some baggage about, man, you better behave yourself or Jesus, he ain't going to love you. He loved you while you were jacked up. When you were rebellious and you were evil and you were doing things that disrespect him. He loved you then. What makes you think once you're saved that now you got to perform and jump through the spiritual hoops that the legalistic religious church taught you? The only reason that we try to honor him with how we think and how we speak and how we relate and love people is because he's adopted us as his kids. He's like, listen, just love people the way that I've loved you and grab onto these truths of scripture and share them with people so that people's lives are transformed. Um... I think each week I've just tried to do this with you. I've tried to give you one question. 
Let me give you one question because I'm out of time here. My question that I would love for you to think through and try to experience all week is this. Because Christ alone saved me and dwells in me, how shall I live? Now, I don't want you to mess this up, okay? (laughs) Don't mess up my really good question. Because Christ alone saves me and he lives in me, how how should I live? Let me get very practical. How then shall I raise my kids? See, if I asked you to, don't do this right now, because I don't have much time. If I asked you to open your phone and look at your calendar, what's on there? I got a nail appointment later in the week. It's going to be fantastic. If I live in Christ alone and he lives in me, how then should I treat the person doing my nails? Some of y'all got a job this week. You're going to go to work. How then, if Christ, if I stand in Christ alone and he saved me and dwells in me, how should I write that report? How should I deal with that person who's really, really challenging, like just emotionally, they got stuff going on and they're just really hard to, I love them because Christ told me to, but I don't really like them. How, how am I going to treat them? Now, here's where you could mess this up. It can sound like, hey, because Christ, you live in Christ alone and he saved you by Christ alone and he dwells in you, he's involved with your life. It can sound like, how should I live? It can sound like, how do I behave? It's actually not what I'm saying. Maybe it's part of it. It's also this though. If he lives in you, he's gonna show up in your world this week. He's going to show up with opportunities for you to speak truth. He's going to show you up with opportunities for you to love on people. We were singing this song. Shout Jesus in the mountains when life is good. Shout Jesus in the streets. Shout Jesus in the darkness. This might not show up on your calendar, but there are moments where you and I, man, we struggle with sin and we walk in darkness. Speak the name of Jesus. Jesus, I know you're in this place. When you're struggling with sin, Jesus, I'm calling out to you right now. Say it out loud. I mean, when you're in that dark place, Jesus, I need you right now. Say it out loud. That's what you should do. When you get depressed, Jesus, I need you right now. Because he wants to transform your life. It's not about your, just your obedience. It's about you paying attention that he's with you. He's in you. You're saved in Christ alone, and he will transform your life. You got kids that are running wild. Jesus, I'm just shouting out your name over my kid's life. I'm going to call on you in my family. See, we're saved in Christ alone and we're transformed in Christ alone. So what will you do this week with this question? Maybe it is how will you run your company? How about how will you bag those groceries at work? How will you interact with your colleagues? How will you wait on tables? How will you be a customer and honor all workers? How will he show up in your life? We are saved in Christ alone. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have a band come out, and uh, we're going to end this service with, by receiving communion. And uh, in the rooms, uh, in the stations around here, if you've never done this with us before, there's a little cup, and on one side is bread, and the other side is juice, and that bread... It represents the body of Jesus. 
There's actually nothing magical about it, but something deeply spiritual about it. It's bread. But we symbolize the body of Christ that was broken on the cross for us. And then the other side of that cup, there's some juice. And it's the symbol of his blood. And so we eat and we drink in remembrance of what Christ has done so that we are saved in Christ alone. Amen? If you're not able to get out of your seat, we have ushers. Just, you can raise your hand when we, take, when we receive communion. Um, and we'd be happy to bring that by to you. But here's how we're going to end. There's this song, and it's called In Christ Alone. And we're going to sing it together. More than sing it, we're going to proclaim it together. So do me a favor, stand right now. Here's how I want to do this. Um, As we sing this, this is a proclamation of what we believe. That we stand in Christ alone. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're new to our church, maybe first time, listen, if you're a Christian, you're welcome to receive communion. If you're not yet a Christian, don't receive this. It ain't for you yet. But I would say this, what's keeping you as the center of your world and not allowing Christ to be there? He died for that opportunity. Maybe today you need to cross that line of faith. You need to say, yeah, I've, I've messed up. I need forgiveness. Jesus paid for all your wrongdoings, past, present, and future. Receive that gift. If you want to do that today, pray to receive Christ. But don't let it be a secret. Tell somebody about it. Write on that card. Tell me about it. I will pray for you. I'm not going to meddle in your life. I just want to cheer you on. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing this proclamation that we stand in Christ alone. Hey, full volume, folks. You ready? We're going to proclaim this thing, not mildly sing it like, oh, it's kind of true. We're going to sing this thing. And then after this song, once it's done, then you can receive communion. Let's sing.